after a U.S. drone killed Major General Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad, Leila Hashemi, who is my guest today, analyzed the response through the social media platform Twitter. Hashemi is a policy PhD candidate at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. She is also the managing editor of the Journal of Civil Society and a graduate researcher at GMU's Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center. This month, she co-authored one of the most widely read articles in the Washington Post, which analyzed the Iranian response to General Soleimani's killing through the worldwide Twitter feeds in Iran's national language, Farsi. Leila Hashemi also presented a lecture this month at the Smithsonian Museum for Asian Art in Washington, D.C. Joining us in the studio is Leila Hashemi. Welcome, Leila. Thanks for having me, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a dynamic month. Yes. <laughs> I attended your lecture at the Smithsonian. It was standing room only, absolutely packed. It had a diverse crowd, and there were so many questions for you. The event went over the time slot. It's fair to say the public is craving a lot of information about what's happening in Iran. All right, first question. Farsi is the national language of Iran, uh, an estimated number of 110 million speakers worldwide. It's also referred to as Persian. You are working on a long-term research project to collect all Farsi language tweets on the Twitter platform worldwide. When did you start this project and what drew you to this type of research? I started the PhD program at George Mason at the Shar School in 2015 and had done some initial internet and technology policy research. Got really excited about, you know, taking classes uh, for social scientists using Python working on research grants and showed me kind of how easily we can access some of this data and content and really how useful it could be for policy research. So this sparked an interest in computational social science. And after narrowing my dissertation topic down to looking at the Iranian women's movement, I began collecting movement level hashtags, but I just kept wanting to widen my scope and get more of this data. So this kind of led me to meeting uh, Dr. Stephen L. Wilson, who's based at University of Nevada, Reno, uh, who I spoke with, who's actually writing a manual on social media as data. So it was a perfect match. I'm really excited to have met him. And after expressing my interest at this research institute, I was introduced to him. I reached out, and he's been nothing but helpful and very encouraging ever since. And we he offered to uh, um, help me be begin collecting this Persian language tweets through API, which is Application Programming Interface. Can you explain that a little bit? So there's many ways that you can get at tweets, and you have a REST API and an active API. And I think what's critical to point out here is that it's really difficult to get tweets retroactively. When I say difficult, it's almost impossible. So you would have to pay Twitter or find someone that has that data. And so my motivation to collect all Persian language tweets was that I wouldn't have to be necessarily on top of all of the trends. So I'd have to, you know, kind of get to my computer to set up new Twitter searches every time. But in collecting all Persian language tweets. Then can you go in and select a time period that you want to study after you've collected those those tweets? Absolutely. Okay. So you can go in and narrow into a particular key term, a particular period of time once you oh, have them. Fascinating. Uh, so Stephen and I, you know, set this up and we assumed that it would be a lot of data. And so targeting a particular language like Farsi, we use stop words and the Persian alphabet. 
and we started collecting in September of last year, so September 16th. And so far, I'm happy to say we've collected 93.5 million Farsi language tweets. On average, what is the number of tweets in Farsi on Twitter per day? We see almost a million per day. I think we're at 780,000. But with everything that's been going on, it's kind of gone up and down. But prior to when we started collecting in September, it was hovering anywhere between, let's say, 700,000 to about a million tweets per day. Did you see a spike after the drone, the U.S. drone killed Major General Qasem Soleimani? Absolutely, yes. So right after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, we saw quadruple the number of Persian language tweets. And we actually, it's interesting, we still see twice as many right now, two weeks later. There is widespread online censorship in Iran And we know that many social media sites are banned. So how is it that so many Iranians have Internet connectivity? Do you have a sense of how the typical Iranian gets on the Internet and maintains their presence? So the short answer to that would be that they use VPNs or virtual private networks, which sort of mask the location and the Internet traffic of the user, throws off the scent, not really allowing you know, authorities or whoever would like to look into where this traffic is coming from. But is there something about that tweet that lets you know it its point of origin was coming from so, Iran? Do you look at the content or what, what are the clues that you see in those tweets? So part of this and what's so exciting about the Persian language that tweets that we're collecting is that given the shutdown last November, we're able to kind of decipher that the majority of these tweets are actually coming from inside Iran, which is an amazing finding because in general, not just in Iran, it's so difficult to pinpoint the location of where these tweets are coming from. So I believe the figure is about 2% of tweets worldwide are geotagged. And this is because Twitter's default setting is that geotagging is off. So a user would have to go into their Twitter application, turn on their geotagging for us to be able to see that. And actually, with only 2% of the geotag tweets overall, it's even less in Farsi. It's 0.5% of Farsi tweets are geotagged. And then this is even further complicated by the fact that Iranians are using VPNs. What are some of the most consistent hashtags that you have observed and have they shifted since the killing of Soleimani? Right. So we saw a drastic shift in in Soleimani after Soleimani's death. Prior to his death, we saw a lot of language about Shia Islam, which makes sense coming out of Iran. We saw language related to martyrdom, actually. But after Qasem Soleimani's death, we saw a really negative reaction on Twitter, condemning U.S. actions and using hashtags like hard revenge, vengeance, calling Qasem Soleimani a martyr. Um, We have seen trends like, for instance, in the November shutdown of people were using hashtag Internet for Iran, um, some dissident content. But in general, you see that Persian Twitter is pretty diverse. You know, I'd say it's maybe 50-50 conservative um, or, you know, anti-regime, if you would call it that. But uh, lots of different trends. I particularly am looking at uh, Blue Girl, which is a case of Sahar Khodayari, who died um, after setting herself on fire, after being arrested for entering a soccer stadium disguised as a man. So this would come up. Uh, tweets that 
refer to this would come be tagged as hashtag blue girl. Correct. Okay. And you've, you've been tracking this one in particular. Yes, in particular, okay. and it's really popular in Farsi. So I study the women in public space and Iranian women and their use of social media to gain access to public space and gender equality. So Blue Girl really points to this unofficial ban that Iran has on women from soccer stadiums and how they were previously entering disguised as men. And Blue Girl went pretty viral in the region even and pushed actually led to FIFA to pressure the Iranian government to sell tickets to a soccer stadium match between Iran and Cambodia of October of last year. So this is one of these. I often get the question, where does your research have a real impact on the ground in real life? And I feel like this is a perfect example of that. So the hashtag blue girl in based on your research and your observation, had a significant impact within Iran in allowing women to attend soccer matches. They were previously banned from from attending those sporting events. Absolutely. And I think it's a great victory for Iranian women. At the same time, I should mention that it's a little bit of a this pyrrhic victory of maybe the benefits do not outweigh the costs because Iran has done this previously before. They've symbolically let women into soccer stadiums to kind of appease international pressure. One of the things I want to circle back to is this um, piece that you co-authored with Stephen Wilson in the Washington Post last week. It was really widely read and um, discussed some at your lecture at the Smithsonian last weekend. The title is, If Any Iranians Supported Soleimani's Killing, It Would Have Been Dissidents on Twitter, and the Opposite Happened. So you're looking at all of these Twitter messages in the Farsi language, and you did what did what you saw surprise you in terms of the response to Soleimani's killing? In other words, did you expect there to be more of a fractured response? It's an excellent question. I don't know if I had very many expectations, but whenever these key events happen in Iran, Stephen and I often touch base and see what's going on in Persian Twitter. I did not expect to see quadruple the amount of Persian tweets. That I did not expect to see. And I, knowing... A little bit of background about Soleimani, it made sense that we would see this negative reaction. I think what isn't surprising and what I think is really important to point out is that it wasn't just that he was such a popular figure or he was viewed favorably by Iranians. I think also internationally that there was a sense that this was, you know, a breach of of sovereignty, a, a breach of sovereignty that goes sort of against international norms and rules and that the ne- that the negative backlash does not equal support for the government or the IRGC. So, as you know, Qasem Soleimani was the head of the Khuds Force, which is the foreign arm of the IRGC, which is known to be pretty corrupt paramilitary economic empire in Iran. We might have been seeing a rally around the flag effect, and there some have claimed that it may even have been an orchestrated backlash by the government. But, you know, many didn't respond, like I said, before with a favorable view just because they were speaking out against the U.S. breach. Um, And I also think that Hassan Soleimani, given that he had this outward, he was part of this foreign part of the IRGC, he had this place in Iranians' minds where he was seen as protecting the country, you know, protecting it outside of its borders. He was viewed as sort of a humble man. So I think that given that he was representing the, the country outwardly and, you know, part of the Khuds force and and that he really did make a point of and he had a huge media campaign behind him and everything, but really portrayed him as this person who was humble, lived in a 
moderate home um, and was sort of above a lot of the corruption that the IRGC is often associated with. One of the things I like to do on this program, Real Fiction, is look at the intersection between fact and fiction. We bring in uh, novelists and authors that uh, work on nonfiction narratives. How does the technology that you're employing distinguish between computer-generated bot tweets and communication between real accounts. And I think the second part of that question is, what what are Iranians in the diaspora really looking for? What, are, what kind of information are they craving? Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Thank you for your question, Lori. I think that we're all sort of craving fact-based information, not just Iranians, um, which is driving this increased effort to obtain this data and empirical evidence to back up our statements. And it's a trend that I, as a data scientist, am a huge fan of, of course. Uh, It's an excellent question. Um, And in a a way, it's an issue that plagues social media data and analysis. The bottom line is much of the content produced on these platforms is not created by journals or news outlets, right? So I was speaking at the talk about this era of publishers to platforms. Many of these tweets are coming from ordinary people, ordinary Iranians, and we see this blurred boundary between traditional and social media, which makes the line between fact and fiction, as you you know, covering your show, often very blurred, which to me is very scary. <laughs> um, so we see fake news that's released. And despite efforts to retract these false statements, people hear these lies and they stick and they circulate. And that's there's not a lot that we can do about this, but try to call a spade a spade. And, you know, when it comes to overly biased or blatantly false or bought information, try to prevent these non-truths from being released to begin with. Um, And that's a key part of my research that emphasizes how we really need to be rethinking the way we produce and absorb information in 2020. We previously had these publishers like newspapers, sort of one common source for our facts. And that air is over. And we're flocking to places like Twitter to make sense of the world, which is why examining public discourse on these platforms is so important. But it's it's certainly not the whole story, but it's an important one. And it, that's only becoming more and more relevant, especially with the U.S. president who's using the application as his megaphone for announcing his every move. A funny anecdote is that I follow Trump, obviously, on Twitter a lot. And you'll see, you know, Americans telling him to go to bed if he's talking about policy. And I, it's crazy to me that we're hanging on his every you know, tweeted character, and that people are able to engage with him at this level, you know, telling him to go to bed on Twitter. Um, We're flooded with this stuff. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm anxious to ask you this. On January 12th, President Trump set out a tweet in the Farsi language. And, oh, everybody wanted to ask you about this at the lecture. Um, and so he sent out a tweet in the Farsi language. I've seen headlines that it was the most like Persian tweet in the history of Twitter, and we can talk about those numbers in a minute. But wh- what are your thoughts about this type of communication being used by the president of the United States and being reviewed in Iran? Because we don't have formal diplomatic relations. So as a sci- political scientist and a data scientist, this is fascinating, right, to see leaders using this platform to communicate? Yes, absolutely. And I don't think it's the first time that we've seen this. So I mentioned in the talk about how President Barack Obama's last name was used by Iranians, Ubamost, right? He's with us. And so you mm. see social media filling in a lot of this space left behind 
by not having formal relations between the two countries, both between, you know, officials as well as populations in Iran and the U.S. And like the reaction to Ghassan Soleimani's killing, the response to Trump's Farsi tweet was pretty overwhelmingly negative and critical. Foreign Minister, Iranian Foreign Minister uh, Abbas Musavi mentioned, you know, quote, hands and ties smeared with threatening, sanction and terrorizing the hashtag Iranian nation and are not entitled to dishonor the ancient hashtag Persian language, you know, really speaking out against the fact that Trump is using this language as a way to try to connect with the Iranians. But, you know, in the weeks and days prior to this, had been very, you know, outspoken, had uh, threatened to attack Iran's cultural sites. Um, He did claim that his tweet was one of the most popular Persian language tweets, which Given that I study Persian Twitter, I, of course, you would know, was it the most like Persian tweet or were there related Persian tweets that that trended off that that were more popular? Right. Well, the one that's my favorite, of course, because I'm a Star Wars fan, was Mark Hamill's response mocking Trump and uh, drawing attention to the fact that despite his claims to have always stood with the Iranian people, he created a travel ban and threatened to bomb Iran's cultural sites. Um, And that has for a while had more more likes than than Trump's Farsi tweet. A lot of our memes are about politicians and political satire is not really anything new. So I think um, these memes and hashtags are doing a lot on an individual societal level because they make politics sexy, fun and attractive and accessible. And at a national level, I do think it's concerning because do we really want Twitter to be our policy platform? We see, um, interestingly, this is on Instagram, but we saw the blocking of legitimate accounts and posts referring to Soleimani as a martyr on Instagram. And this is apparently being remedied, but it really points to the flaws in a lot of the filtering, especially in non-English languages. And this is important because it shows how certain voices are muted and highlighted on the discussion in these platforms. Okay, you said something really interesting there. The the word filtering... Mm -hmm. What words are you looking for and what words are you eliminating from the tweets? Right. So I am looking at, with Stephen and I's collection of the Persian language tweets, we are looking at stop words, ands and thes and ofs, as well as using Persian, the Persian alphabet. So that's our workaround to collecting this Twitter data is asking for short words in Farsi and also using the Farsi language alphabet. To, to collect these tweets. Um, the filtering that I was just referring to is more on the platform level, which kind of goes into platform regulation and holding platforms accountable, where there are terms of sort of use and, and guidelines on all these platforms. All of them sort of have different ones, but generally they'll, you know, kind of block content that talks about terrorism or hate speech or any kind of harassment online, which are good. They're good regulations that we should have. It's when they're not applied, when we fall into these uncharted territories of blocking Instagram accounts or posts because they simply mention Qasem Soleimani and Martyr together. And in particular, the the filtering that happens in non-English languages because it's not as advanced. So it ends up blocking legitimate voices. The technology that you're using, is it in a state of kind of evolution? I think that Twitter and what I'm really excited about is that Twitter is actually pretty open. And especially if you have like programming or computer science background, you can start to collect tweets like anyone listening, Lori, to this episode 
would be able to collect tweets, unlike maybe Instagram or Facebook that are a little bit more closed to researchers coming in. And you see this a lot. I see researchers having grants with Facebook and social media platforms recognizing that academics and researchers and data scientists are interested in gaining access to this data. A lot of it probably has to do with privacy. But the queries or the searches that I'm setting up in Twitter look at particular women's movements hashtags like Blue Girl, White Wednesdays. Another big one is my, um, my Stealthy Freedom or My Camera is My Weapon. I'm also looking at a topic level in English and Farsi that looks at terms like women and hijab to see how people are discussing specifically women in public space. And then the broadest level is this collection of all Persian Twitter with Stephen. Are Iranians both internally in Iran and in the diaspora looking for clues as to the level of repression or openness with something as basic as a dress code. Yes, absolutely. I think that it's important to point out that there's also a lot of Muslim women who are you know, posting content that encourages wearing of the hijab and encourages empowering it. And so my project really does look at the choice in dress and freedom of choice and expression in that sense. Uh, some trends that I've seen in the women's movement that I'm following in Iran, if we can call it that, is that I, I've seen a shift from sort of stealthy freedom, which is how the movement sort of started out in 2014, where it was women quietly kind of taking off their hijab and and stealing this moment of freedom and being really yavoshaki, like real quiet about it. And then it very much evolved into this White Wednesday campaign of signaling a color, signaling a day of the week to mobilize where women were really you know, you get a little bit more explicit protest. And then what I think is so great is that um, hashtag my camera is my weapon is a documenting of human rights abuses. And so this is any sort of harassment by morality police in Iran that's being documented. And there you even see Iranians um, standing behind some of their fellow citizens when they're being attacked by morality police or for bad hijab. This really shifted the way that authorities were looking at this issue, I think, in Iran and made them a little bit scared and to hesitate. Do you have a sense of how many tweets are coming from women? How many tweets are coming from men? And do you have a generational range? Are you able to to get any clues about those types of distinctions? That's a fascinating question. I'm very much interested in gender studies. And I, I do know that there are a lot of studies done about male versus female, um, you know, post and content. And how do people react to male versus females tweeting the same content? And you do see a very pretty strong gender bias where women tend to be harassed more on the internet. They tend to, I mean, there's this, you know, the edge of like, there's no girls on the internet. And and that's really scary to me, this idea that a lot of the gender discrimination and harassment and horrible things, gender inequalities that we yes. see in real life are being replicated online. Do you think some women are posing as men on on the internet in their Twitter Twitter accounts? Absolutely. And I think that that's not just, just for Iran. I mean, I think this no girls on the internet kind of points to this where, you know, women are in a way don't want to say that they're women online because they might be harassed. As a woman, I hear way too many accounts of, of other women saying that they've gotten private messages that are kind of suggestive or sexual in nature. At the same time, we do see this, you know, the, the documenting of these abuses and, and push for social justice. So, I mean, 
movement like Me Too is the flip side of this, where it's actually exposing these crimes, these injustices, and really creating this power in numbers where people that previously might not have been comfortable speaking out now feel like they can do so. Layla, there's something I want to clarify that has to do with your research. I'd love to know, how does the technology that you're employing, and you work on this technology with uh, your research colleague, Stephen Wilson, when this technology... Is it able to distinguish between computer-generated bot tweets versus communication from real accounts? Yes, Lori. Thank you so much for your question. So we actually run a random sample of our data through a bot detection algorithm set up to distinguish between bots and real accounts. And after running this data through the bot algorithm, we found that only about 2.8% were likely to be bots, so not very many. We mentioned that you had a lecture at the Smithsonian Museum of Asian Art, and I've attended a few of these lectures, and yours was standing room only. It was... um, (laughs) We went over the limit in asking questions, but what struck me is that the crowd was incredibly diverse. We had people from all ages. We had people in the audience from, you know, different, you know, very, very different backgrounds. And you had questions that made me think that your research will have wide application in studying internet censorship and repression in other countries. And I think China and North Korea are two examples Is the Shar Center looking at this? Are you looking at this? Right, yeah. So as you mentioned, Lori, the event had a great attendance. It was a really great crowd. Thank you to the Freer Sackler for arranging this, my colleagues at TRAC, which is the Terrorism Transnational Crime and Corruption Center, and then actually Brightest Young Things live tweeted the event. So I'm I'm really grateful for their, you know, documenting of the talk. And thank you, Lori, for attending. Um, The exhibition was beautiful. As you mentioned, it was covering women in public space and uh, great turnout, really diverse audience. I think it's important to point out that all countries have Internet restrictions, but the bottom line is that many of these restrictions are no longer being set by nation states or at the country level anymore. We have these private companies that are curating our news and information, and we need to think seriously about what this means and how we can best deal with this drastic shift in our communication. Uh, I don't know of any particular parts of the university specifically looking at this, you know, online censorship in authoritarian context. I guess that's sort of what I'm bringing to the table as a graduate student. But I will say that TRAC actively incorporates Internet policy and regulations into all of its grants. For example, we have a human trafficking hackathon. We we have a lot of uh, work being done on online illicit trade. So kind of tracking and monitoring online drug sales, sale of illicit antiquities, wildlife trafficking. Um, And apparently the university is now planning a new computer science and data analytics center that'll be built in Arlington with money just allocated from the state of Virginia, which is exciting. Um, So hopefully that's something, an area they can tackle in the future. How would you like to see your research impact social policy? You, You got to this a little bit in the lecture. Can you expand on that a bit? Yes, absolutely. So my Three takeaways are that we should use social media as data to document these human rights abuses and to get at this information that's so often easily available and often publicly available. The second would be to hold platforms accountable. So in this era of publishers to platforms, we have standards for publishers like newspapers that hold them accountable for the information that they release. And a first step, a very simple and feasible, I think, first step would be to hold these social media platforms accountable to the same 
rules and regulations. And so you see Twitter has already done this with the banning of political ads. And then third would be to practice responsible digital citizenship. I feel like we have this sense that people act online in anonymity and that being online, you're sort of behind this mask. And if we could maybe be um, more amicable in our online you know, interactions, this idea of like no girls on the internet. Why is that true? It's because girls feel like they're going to, or women, I should say, are feel like they're going to be harassed. And so to make this a safe place and a, this powerful network public spe- sphere, a place where everyone feels welcome and can express their views. This is fascinating research. So the goal is use social media to document abuses, hold platforms accountable, and all of us should be practicing responsible digital citizenship. Layla Hashemi is my guest today. Layla, thank you so much for coming today. You've had a busy week. You're in demand and you're, you've got a flight in a few hours. So we are delighted that you were able to come today. Thank, thank you so you much. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone for listening. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Thank you.